Welcome to the 2023 World PICU Awareness Week podcast on sepsis. Created by the European Society of Pediatric Neonatal Intensive Care and promoted by the World Federation of Pediatric and Critical Care Societies. Each episode will host a short interview with key European opinion leaders on preventing and managing pediatric sepsis in PICU and NICU. Hello, my name is Akash Deep. I'm a pediatric intensivist at King's College Hospital in London, and I'm the Chair of Scientific Affairs for the European Society of Pediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care, ESPNIC, and I'll be the host for this episode. So this podcast is being recorded as a part of the PICU World Awareness Week organized by the World Federation of Pediatric Intensive and Critical Care Societies, the WIFPICS. And we have chosen sepsis as a theme for this year. Now, we've taken you through a journey. Yesterday, we spoke about a parent's perspective. We spoke to Melissa Mead. And then we spoke about sepsis awareness perspectives to Ron Daniels from Birmingham in the UK. And today, I'll be speaking to a world-renowned researcher with interest in sepsis, Professor Lorraine Schlappack, who is a professor and head of department of intensive care and neonatology in Zurich, Switzerland. He is the past chair of Australian New Zealand Intensive Care study group, and the current chair of the sepsis section of ESPNIC. And today, we'll be discussing research and implementation priorities for sepsis management. Welcome, Loren, to this podcast. Hello, Akash. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be part of, of this podcast. So, Loren, let's, uh, you know, we've been following, and everyone is following the graph of your sepsis research, and you've been at the forefront of a number of sepsis initiatives, whether it is formulating a sepsis definition or leading on the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. I think what the audience would be very keen to know is where are we with the sepsis definition for children? And do you think the sepsis three definition used for adults can be extrapolated to children? So as we all know, the current definitions or criteria that we use for sepsis in children date back to 2005, which is a consensus a meeting essentially of experts uh, with the purpose essentially to define criteria to enroll patients in the trial. But these criteria have been used so far throughout. As we know, when sepsis 3 was published in 2016 by adults, um, there was a strong focus on the presence of organ dysfunction but the score used was exclusively applied to adults and there were no pediatric data sets used neither in the derivation nor in the validation. So since then, we've essentially had this gap. In 2017 and 18, the Society of Critical Care Medicine decided to sponsor an international pediatric sepsis definition task force, which incorporates over 40 experts from several continents of different disciplines and on that body of work is progressing well. And we hope that actually in the coming year, that new criteria for sepsis in children can be released. What's already been published is a global survey, which has shown that the criteria which clinicians use around the world to recognize sepsis are actually fairly different. And so that needs to be taken into account of. And what's been shown as well is that there's a very strong need from clinicians around the world to have criteria which permit to recognize sepsis early. So there's um, an emphasis on the sensitivity of criteria, not only on the specificity of criteria. In addition, led by QSMINON as well, what's been published is a systematic review, which uh, tried to show which criteria have been used in the past to identify patients with sepsis or to identify worse outcomes with sepsis. 
in order to guide as well the, the evidence base for the work currently underway. Thank you, Lorraine. And you know, other thing which I think sometimes people kind of uh, confuses the sepsis management. When we talk about sepsis management, it's just taken if you're talking about the first one hour or the immediate presentation to the ER. Now, what exactly is sepsis management? What exactly should it involve? So I think as, as you rightly say, there's an absolutely crucial point of sepsis management, which is when a patient presents to a healthcare facility or already within a healthcare facility, sepsis is recognized which then, you know, within what time frame should treatments be delivered? And this is sort of a key, you know, angle point of the surviving sepsis campaign. However, this point needs to be considered within the whole patient trajectory. And this trajectory may start at home or it may start in community, it may start in hospital, and then it leads to actually becoming sick due to infection, getting sepsis treatment, but it needs to then lead as well through the stabilization of the patient, the recovery of the patient, into post-discharge. Now, of course, I think effective sepsis campaigns need to systematically assess the whole patient trajectory. Because if, for example, there is an issue with sepsis recognition in the community and referral pathways to treat sepsis, then actually the public messaging is extremely important and you know, supporting of, of um, general care. Whereas if, if actually major gaps happen for in-hospital patients, then that needs to be prioritized more. Most quality improvement areas around sepsis have had a strong focus on EDs in particular, but as well ward patients when it came to actually recognizing and treating sepsis. But most initiatives that have done so, they have realized that in order to do this work well, it needs to be embedded with a systematic awareness campaign that targets both the public as well as the, the healthcare workforce. And in that regard, I think, you know, the, the work that Ron Daniels has again, you know, spoken about in the previous podcast is really worldwide leading, you know, because the UK has done, I think, an amazing job in very clear public messaging and as well messaging to the healthcare workforce on what sepsis is and why sepsis is important. Where most areas probably are least um, advanced of is actually how to support post-sepsis care. Um, as we all know, actually, there's a huge range within countries, within institutions, um, within disciplines, in terms of which patients get what type of follow-up. And our colleagues um, from the neonatal ICUs, they've established very standardized follow-up systems for most extremely preterm patients for, you know, almost dating back two decades. And as we know, many children surviving ICU still do not have access to the same quality and standards of follow-up procedures. And that, of course, is a key question and specific to sepsis too, because we do know that sepsis has an impact on increasing the risk of long-term sequelae, which may be more cognitive or physical, such as amputations, or as well more psychological. So I think it's important to, to very systematically lay out in your institution or in the healthcare setting you work, the patient journey, and actually make the meet with stakeholders and decide actually where should you focus on most. But remember that if you have the resources to and the stakeholder support, a comprehensive sepsis program is probably more likely to yield a sustainable benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And when we talk about sepsis, we often talk about quality improvement and we talk about research. 
So the first question is, where are we currently with sepsis quality improvement initiatives in Europe, especially with relation to children? And what is the evidence base for sepsis quality improvement? So the best overview of the current situation around sepsis quality improvement initiatives um, is can be found in the European Sepsis Alliance uh, annual report which every year um, actually provides an update on which country is doing what around sepsis. This is not pediatric specific though, but what you can see in there is that even within Western Europe, there are huge discrepancies. The country which has been most active for longest certainly now is the UK, which has over a decade now, you know, of experience around sepsis six, but a number of other countries are actually, you know, following suit very quickly. So, for example, France actually has is, is sponsoring a, a central sepsis program. Germany has the Sepsis Foundation. Switzerland has published recently a national sepsis action plan. And several Scandinavian countries are as well becoming increasingly active, to just mention a few examples. However, what the key focus is of these programs and to what degree children are included varies quite a lot. And I think to a degree we may need actually better exchange between these countries to have better exchange around pediatric-specific quality improvement measures. As we all know, there's big risk that children essentially, you know, are considered too small a population to advocate for the needs of this population, even, you know, in statewide or national sepsis campaigns. Um, Despite the children are disproportionately hit by sepsis, both in relation to short as well as long-term outcomes. The other aspect why I believe it's very important to really titrate quality improvement to children is that the recognition of sepsis poses unique challenges for pediatric age groups. You know, the overall acuity in the pediatric emergency department is much lower than in an adult emergency department. The amount of children that present with febrile mild illnesses that uh, do not require antibiotics and, very, and in most cases are not sepsis now is huge. And so we need to ensure actually that there is pediatric-specific algorithms to screen and to treat. Then finally, as well, and I think, again, that's unique, is there are big differences between countries in relation to how often do children initially present to a non-pediatric facility. As, you know, pediatric intensivists, we usually, you know, we're, we're used to work just in a highly specialised pediatric facility. But in many countries, children usually first present to a non-pediatric facility or at least to a clinician, which is primarily untrained. And so there's a key question too there, which I don't think has been really well answered so far, is what is the effective training for adults caring for children that they can actually support sepsis quality improvement in that work? To summarize, so we don't have a very good understanding of the differences for pediatric-specific quality improvement work which in my view now really makes a strong point that we need to start exchanging us more uh, through ESPNIC as well, specific around pediatric sepsis quality improvement in order not to reinvent the wheel and to learn from each other. In relation to the second question of what is actually evidence for such is, there is strong observational evidence that children who are managed in a protocolized way um, where, where sepsis is recognized and treated quicker, have better outcomes in terms of mortality, in terms of ICU admission, ICU length of stay, healthcare costs, and so on. These data are quite strong, and they, back, they date back to different healthcare settings with a majority of publications which came from the US. 
good example being, of course, the Rory's regulation in New York State. Then what we lack at the moment, we lack randomized controlled data, or even the, um, I'm not aware of sort of stepped wedge type the quality improvement works, which test implementation of sepsis quality improvement initiatives compared to, pay, uh, to settings who don't have this. This is getting difficult, of course, too, because actually usually when hospitals commit to sepsis quality improvement initiatives, there's a gradual process which starts already before the implementation, so that can be really hard to tease out. If we think back to the EPOC trial, you know, which looked at early warning systems to recognize deteriorating patients, I'm sure many of those listening were disappointed as well by the results, despite our, at least I was convinced, you know, this would show a benefit. And I think it's a good example why the scientific approach to demonstrate benefits of such quality improvement initiatives outside observational studies can actually be relatively tricky. Um, but the observational data and, you know, the implications for not only saving lives, but improving quality of life and saving costs are very, very, very compelling in my view. Thank you, Larry. And I think you very nicely alluded to some of the protocols which which people follow, whether it's the Pediatric Sepsis 6, we talk about ACCM guidelines or talk about the New York mandate. And, you know, when people talk about these protocols or, or bundles, immediately things come to mind, which is we need to complete this bundle within a stipulated period of time. Now, that sometimes contradicts our efforts when we say we're going to improve the antimicrobial stewardship because it says you need to give the antibiotics as soon as possible within one hour. So how would you want to, what message would you want the audience to take? So antimicrobial stewardship is that the right patient gets the right antibiotic at the right time. From that angle, there is no discrepancy, actually, you know, surviving sepsis campaign and antimicrobial stewardship want to achieve the same thing. The problem is that if you have an indiscriminate application of time to treatment rules in populations where you have a substantial proportion of patients with simply viral infections, that then it gets tricky. And there are different ways to deal with this. Um, one way certainly is to say that Sepsis screening tools, they should not be tools that decide who needs treatment. These are tools that should raise the awareness of senior clinicians of sick patients in their department. And I would say, even if this patient doesn't have sepsis, maybe it's disease bronchiolitis who's struggling to breathe now, I want to be informed about that patient. And this is something which in the current literature I don't think has been flagged enough. We really need to look at the benefit of screening tools for sepsis to help us recognize sick patients in our unit. EDs have actually done this to a degree the other way around. Now, many EDs, they've implemented early warning tools, which are not specific to specific diseases. Specifically with the purpose of saying, you know, clinicians need to be aware of who is sick. Um, and I think that that work, that body of work is really important because there is true follow. You know, the amount of patients presenting that possibly could have sepsis based on some features, but who do not have sepsis. You know, that, that is a, is, that is a funnel. And the screening work actually needs to, to improve, telling us we think this patient has a high likelihood of sepsis. And that's why we should prioritize treatment here. At this stage, even when you look at sophisticated algorithms, um, usually they still then include a link with the clinician where the clinician needs to go and look at the patient and make a decision. 
whether that's an individual clinician or more like a sepsis huddle, where you have a number of people that go and look at this patient. And then in that moment, they decide, you know, I think that needs to be titrated to institutions. Personally, I think it is key. The second argument, which is key here, is to realize that these events should not just be escalation events. These should be as well de-escalation events. And so as much as this may be where you do your sepsis huddle, you look at the patient, you say, you know, this 14-year-old boy flew like symptoms the last few days now has gone into shock and has, you know, rash. To me, this looks like a toxic shock. We need to immediately start the sepsis bundle. You know, that's one scenario, but the other bundle could be as well. We've assessed the patient history to us is compatible with a purely viral bronchiolitis. Um, we are happy to stay off antibiotics, but we keep a close eye on this patient in the coming hours. At the moment, I think there's more literature actually to say, actually, how can you use this to escalate treatment? We should probably increasingly use this more as decision point where we say as well, you can then decide as well, I'm not going to treat, or you can say, I'm not too sure, let's reassess in a few hours. So we're talking about basically a a clinician taking in charge of the decision-making, looking at the patient's clinical trajectory. Right, because if we look at the previous quality improvement projects, whether it was by Raina Paul, which is an elegant piece of work in A&E, where they looked at, they used to call it the shock clock, isn't it? That they they wanted to look at how quickly did people get in and start treating shock. But again, one of the key components they looked at was how quickly were antibiotics given. But I think that probably needs a, a bit more clarification now to say it will very much depend on a clinician's judgment on what the patient's trajectory has been. And I think to to further comment on this, we've seen quite a lot of papers that have shown that such protocolized care can speed up delivery of antibiotics. But there is actually not that much uh, data out there at the moment which says is how can the appropriateness of antibiotics be increased. The approach we chose in Queensland, in Australia, when I was involved in the sepsis campaign there is we had ID physicians and antimicrobial uh, stewardship pharmacists being part of the steering board and on, on the design of the collaborative. And I think this was essential. We think it actually in some areas it allowed to improve antimicrobial stewardship because physicians were given clear instructions which antibiotics to use at what dose. Which again, you know, in particular, when you think about physicians that are less familiar with sick children, that can be extremely valuable. But in addition, we could really emphasize as well the need to stop antibiotics after 48 hours if infections were not confirmed. Thank you, Lorraine. Let's talk about research now. So would you mind telling the audience about the latest research which is happening in the PICU management by various research groups across the globe? So... Since the uh, activated protein C trial, there has been a real lack of large RCTs for sick children with sepsis. I mean, the largest trial was the FEAST trial, which was done in a setting where no intensive care was available. And in the last 10 years, we've seen a number of smaller trials, um, as well from settings such as, you know, India, for example, or South America, which are very encouraging. at present, actually, there are some uh, large trials happening, two led by the US. One is the Prompt study led by um, Scott Weiss and Fran Bellamuth from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where they compare crystallites, the subbalanced crystallites with, with saline in the resuscitation of children with septic shock. This study is largely done in EDs and um, has been recruiting quite well in the US from, from what I heard. 
that study will probably take another few years to complete because it's a very large target sample size that is being aimed at. But the hope is going to be that this is going to give us high-grade evidence on what type of fluids to use when you resuscitate children with sepsis. Being aware of the controversy which exists in that field in adults, you know, if you look at the studies um, from Vanderbilt, for example, as well, or, or the ANZIC studies. That's the largest RCT, and I think it's absolutely fantastic to have such a large pragmatic RCT happening. Then second, very large RCT tool led from QSMINON um, from Canada and Jared Zimmerman um, from the US is the SHIPS trial, which uh, investigates the use of hydrocortisone in, in children with septic shock coming to the ICU. That trial as well is recruiting in several countries and um, is well on the way. Again, it's going to still take probably a few years until we can have the results back. This is key because this should give us essentially like the pediatric equivalent um, of the adrenal study results. So it's very exciting to, to see that this study is on the way. There's a third trial aiming to recruit just close to 400 children led by the ANZIX uh, pediatric study group, which is investigating as well hydrocortisone, but is investigating as well the combination with high-dose ascorbic acid um, because that's still the field where actually for children, we, we don't have reliable trial data out there. These are the three largest trials that I'm aware of. What remains actually a key question for the management, for which I'm not aware of any large trial, is actually what type of outcomes should we use when we titrate shock management? You know, the Andromeda trial in adults, for example, compared lactate versus capillary refill guided management. I think we'll definitely need trials moving towards such aims. And of course, there is a huge need for much more personalized trials. You know, the trials I've mentioned are very, very pragmatic. And I think very encouragingly, Mark Hall, Joe Castillo, they are working on actually a more personalized trial where specific interventions um, are actually, you know, trialed based on simple biomarkers. So I think, first of all, it's really exciting that we see a much larger number of interventional trials happening compared to five or 10 years ago, that these tackle different aspects of sepsis management. And as well, I think that they're becoming increasingly international. Thank you, Lauren. And I think lastly, we've talked, we've heard about the few trials which are going on. Where do you think are the gaps in research in sepsis in children? What needs to be done? Or where do we think is the biggest gap? The temptation research is always to think of magic bullets. And research in most fields, but in particular in sepsis, usually shows that the magic bullets don't work, or at least they don't work as well as, as people had hoped to. What is usually a lot less attractive to do research, but extremely relevant for our day-to-day -day practices, actually, which bundles to work at the bedside. So I think we, we should embark on more um, designs such as, you know, stepped wedge designs, for example, where we test to what degree does the, the introduction of a certain quality improvement measure improve patients' outcomes. I'm pretty convinced that we need better evidence in these fields to really in increase, you know, the efficacy and efficiency you know, of, of not only the research, but as well, you know, the clinical, clinical work we do. And what then becomes difficult in there is that when you look at, at quality improvement interventions, you usually have a bundle of different interventions. So the question always then is, well, which of these elements is most useful or not? 
I think once you use large data sets where you have large numbers of patients, you know, you potentially can introduce modifications as well that allow you to shape more defect size of individual bundled components. Now, for example, you know, observational data indicates that the strongest determinant of the benefit of a sepsis bundle are antibiotics, and that possibly the weakest ones are fluids. You know, so maybe in the future we need to look at algorithms which are a bit more personalized. So saying actually you have a patient where you suspect infection, but the patient is not shocked. So is this does this patient necessarily need fluids? And when you have already given fluids, you know, what is the correct amount of fluid? Are the current recommendation of 40 to 60 mils per kilo of fluid before you start inotropes? Is that still accurate? Because we need to remember next to antibiotics, the other treatment, which is very, very broadly used, then are actually fluids. And the only good evidence we have on fluids is that based on the feast study, that's potentially, you know, it, it, it may cause harm to. I think, you know, in the future, hopefully what we will see is, is more complex trials in terms of platform designs, but actually which allow us to really decipher the contribution of individual bundle elements, but in a way that we can more and more understand this implementation of these aspects really make a difference for the patients. Lorraine, thank you so much for taking us through this journey of research, innovation, quality improvement. As always, and as expected, it was a very enlightening podcast for all of us. Always a pleasure and revelation speaking to you. And we wish you all the best in what you're doing for, for uh, research in sepsis in children. And thank you for your time again. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you.